Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about God's relationship to Israel and what we can learn from it. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to invite you to subscribe to our YouTube channel. The fact that you're listening to this tells me that you are probably either interested in our church or desire content that helps you grow in your relationship with God. And if these things are true for you, either one of them, subscribing to our YouTube channel is worth your time. We post content that doesn't really work in audio form, so you won't hear it here. And recently I've been doing these videos I call the Bible Breakdown, where I use my iPad to like write on a Bible passage that I preached on the previous Sunday, and I just kind of explain some of the things that I found interesting from it. The one connected to this sermon will go out in a couple of days. Also, one of our pastors has recently done a series called Apologetics for the 21st Century. It has been super helpful in clarifying really why it is logical to be a Christian and how we can show others that in a way that is actually valuable to them. The Bible Breakdown and this course are both available on YouTube, so again, I invite you to subscribe. You can do that by going to youtube.com slash creekside2 or by searching for us on YouTube, Creekside Bible Church. One more time, it's youtube.com slash creekside2. I hope you'll do it. Again, thank you for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon. I hope that it will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Hi again. I, uh, I've said this before in sermons, but I'm going to say it again. One of, the, one of the things I think I struggle with is trying to, somewhere in my soul, determine who might become a Christian and like who is you know, not going to become a Christian if I talk to them about Jesus. And, and I think in some ways that connects to what we're going to see in this passage today because I think in some ways what we're actually saying is like, God's rejected those people, but maybe not this person who, you know, kind of lives a pretty good life or whatever. And this, this passage of scripture answers a question, I think, that's really important. How far does God's grace extend? Uh, if you know Corey Tenboom and her story of uh, being in a concentration camp, um, you know, it's, it's a story of being hated and... Um, and persecuted and uh, hurt in just about every way. And, and she, she, I've said this in sermons too, but it, it bears repeating. She was, she was up teaching somewhere and telling her story and a, and a guy came up to her afterwards and, and said, you know, hey, I've, I've found Jesus and, uh, you know, will you forgive me like he did basically. And, and she had this moment, she just talked about grace and forgiveness and all of these things that, you know, as Christians, if you're a Christian, we believe in and cling to. And she said there was this just moment where all of the, the rage and the hurt, it just, it was like being able to pick her hand up to shake this guy's hand felt like the, the most difficult thing in the world to do. And then, and then she did it and it was a healing moment. Um, but, you know, we think like, well, does the grace extend to this guy? And, and she answered that question with a yes. And I think that, that we're going to see here in, in Romans 11, and we're going to cover a big chunk of it uh, very quickly today. But I think we're going to see uh, that, that the answer is yes, that, that God's grace does extend even to the people that maybe don't look like we think they should look. They don't seem like they'd fit in, you know, in certain church circles or whatever. 
And, and it's it asked this way for Paul. This is Romans 11.1. 1. I asked then, did God reject his people by no means? Now, the question is focused on the Israelites. Did God reject them? And if you can remember back, if you heard my sermon last week, uh, we, we saw this thing. The question was, you know, why did the Israelites not embrace Jesus as their Messiah? There's so much, I didn't say this last week, but there's so much good evidence for Jesus being their Messiah. In some ways, his generation was really the last generation that, that could prove and, and fulfill the prophecies that were given about the Messiah. And, and so we, we looked at this question Paul kind of wrestles with being an Israelite himself, like, like, well, how come they didn't accept him? And, and he, and he kind of went through some options. He said, well, did they not hear about Jesus? And he said, well, most did. And then did they not understand? Well, they, they did understand. And we talked about how some people don't hear and some people don't understand. And we have a job as, if we're Christians to help people hear and understand. But then he said, here's the reason. Uh, they've just been stubborn. They've been stubborn. And God has held out his hands in gracious love towards them. And they've just stubbornly rejected him. That's the whole reason. And then, you know, we come to this. Okay, well, if that's the case, if God's hands of mercy were extended to these people and they've just been stubborn and they've rejected him over and over and over again, you know, really through generations, then, you know, Paul says, I asked then, did God reject his people? And then he says, by no means. I mean, remember Romans 10, 21, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate People And so is their stubbornness a sign that God has rejected them? Or on the flip side of that, has God rejected them completely because of their stubbornness? And he gives the answer, by no means. And then he's going to explain it in verses 1 through 4. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. Am I the only one left? And they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So Paul says, look, has God completely rejected the Israelites? Well, let me, let me. he says, just here, look, I am an Israelite and God hasn't rejected me. And so immediately we get this glimpse into what Paul is saying here. There is no type of person, there is no type of sin, there is no type of rejection towards God, of God, by people that prevents people from, from receiving God's grace. And, and Paul, you know, he's the perfect example. And if you don't know Paul's story, he was like an Israelite of Israelites. I think he maybe says that actually in scripture. Uh, like he, he was a very good Jew. Uh, morally, religiously, he was a religious leader. He persecuted the early church, uh, Christianity, because he was so passionate about God and he did not want God's name to be blasphemed by this, you know, person named Jesus saying that he was God in human form. He was going to have none of it. And then God met him on a road and, and uh, just totally changed his life. Paul became a Christian. And so Paul is like... <laughs> If the Israelites have been completely and utterly rejected, if there's no hope for them, well, that's not possible because I am one and I epitomized what it meant to be in Israel and yet God has still invited me into his kingdom. He also gives this theological reason 
Uh, that God never rejects those he foreknows. And this is such a, this is a really important theological term. And, and foreknowledge is always connected to people placing their faith in Jesus. And so we believe that God knows what's going to take place in the future. And, and so it's like so clear. He's saying if God foreknew what was going to happen, that people were going to place their faith in him, then absolutely there's no way that he would have rejected them. That's not even a possibility. Those God foreknew, of course he didn't reject them. And there's people amongst the Israelites who have faith and so it follows that the Israelites have not been rejected by God. And then the third reason is just kind of historical, kind of biblical. Uh, I put it into both categories. God has always kept a remnant of Israelites that have in faith served him. It's always been the case and Elijah, I mean this is, I, I, I like this story in Elijah because I can feel this sometimes. Like he's just frustrated and he's basically like, I'm the only one left on planet earth that's serving you, God. And, and God shows up and is like, yeah, get over yourself, kind of. Like, I've reserved a whole bunch of other people that are actively serving me that haven't worshipped false gods. And Paul brings that up here to say what he says in verses 5 and 6. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Says there's still a remnant. There's a remnant of Israelites that have that have placed their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And therefore we can know that they were chosen by grace. Man, I love what Paul says here, and it's it's so important. He says, and if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. Can't be based on works if it's grace. I mean, grace is unmerited favor or an undeserved gift. That's really what grace means. It's, it's giving somebody something that they absolutely in no way deserved, earned, you know, worked for. And Paul says, by definition, if something is by grace, it cannot be by works. If I gave you $5, pick somebody in this room, if I gave you $5 right now, it would be a gift. It would be gracious of me to give to you. But if I said, hey, this is because you did that thing for me last week, then it's no longer a gift, right? It's just a payment for the work that you put in. And Paul is saying, look, it's just, it's, you can't have both. It's either by grace that people are saved or by, uh, by works. And he says, it, it is, it is, by grace. Uh, this is because Jesus came to earth and he died for our sins. And, and in dying for our sins and coming back to life, God said, look, all you have to do is believe in this and give me your life. And, and then I, I'm going to graciously bestow salvation and uh, rich blessing and forgiveness and love and all these things upon you. Uh, you can't earn it. You just have to receive it through my son Jesus. And so again, you know, Paul now says something I think really important because when we think of that, we often want to point to the wretched sinners and say, look, it's only by grace so you can still become a Christian. You can still, you know, have a relationship with God. But it's interesting to me that here he puts it within the context of the Israelites. Even the Israelites who seem to be working for righteousness, who seem to be trying to live for God, and they've missed it. They've been stubborn towards their Messiah. If it was about works, then maybe they're not in, you know? But it's not about works. God can still pour out his grace upon them. Now let me just pause and say, man, we kind of mix it up a little bit sometimes. And I think theologically, uh, you know, if you're a Protestant Christian, um, then, then you're really pretty hard-lined on 
we cannot work our way into a relationship with God. But sometimes we really feel like it and think like it, right? Like God's going to reject me today if I'm not doing certain things or, you know, at least I'm not like them. And it comes back to that idea, you know, like, well, that person, they're a little too bad to get in or whatever. But Paul wants to make a clear and distinct separation. It's works or it's grace. And he's already spent so much time saying it's not works because none of you have worked well enough or hard enough or perfect enough. And so therefore it must be grace. And it follows then, has God rejected his people? Well, well, no, because it's not about whether or not they've been stubborn to this point. It's simply about them receiving the grace that God has for them by making a decision to place their faith in Jesus. And then he says, what then? The people of Israel, they, what they sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. Well, the elect among them did, but the others were hardened. Israel worked and worked and worked and worked and worked and worked and worked for salvation, for righteousness, to be right in the eyes of God, to be innocent. And, and Paul's like, well, does this mean they haven't obtained it? And then he says, well, the elected, the ones that are Christians, they did. I mean, they didn't earn it by their works, clearly, but, but they've received exactly what they wanted to receive. And, and so whether they, you know, spent their whole lives working really hard, and we talked about this, or, or they spent their whole lives completely rejecting all the laws of God, either way, if they've called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of their sins, then they have received what they so desperately wanted, and that was righteousness, to be right in the eyes of God, to be right before God. But then he says the others were hardened. And we, I preached on this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, in Romans 9, he talks about the Jewish people being hardened. And I just want to quickly touch on it again. In the other passage, it was kind of centered around how God hardened Pharaoh, uh, who was an Egyptian leader that held the Israelites in slavery and captivity. And, and, and a couple of things from his story are really important. First, uh, Pharaoh clearly hardens his own heart before God hardens his heart. And, and there is no example in scripture of God hardening somebody's heart who had not already hardened their own hearts towards God. And it really connects to the idea in Romans 2, 24 and 26. There you can read the in-between verse, but it says God gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts and then God gave them over to their shameful lusts. And there seems to be this picture in scripture where at some point God pulls back on, on, you know, how he's restricting you from diving into your sin and your hardness. And he lets you dive into it, you know, headlong, full in, you just get to go all in. And, and, and I think I mentioned, you know, several weeks ago that this, this is like having a kid, right? And, um, and, and I look at my kids and, and I, I have rules for them and, and they're, they're for their good. But I, I realize at some point in life that maybe it would be the right thing to do for me to say, you know what? I've tried and I've tried and I've tried. You're going to have to figure out how bad this is on your own. And that's, that's what it seems to be at the heart of God hardening people. He is allowing for them. He is removing the restraints, preventing us, humanity, from diving more deeply into the evil that, that they are desiring on their own. And, and, and he's just letting them go. He's letting them go. Now, this begs this incredible question because when we read this, we think, how could God do this, right? Like, how could God do this? 
And when we read it, we so quickly want to say, well, that means they're destined for an eternity in hell. Like that's, this just seems terrible. But Romans eleven eleven is really key because Paul, it's like he heard your question. Like, well, is that it? I mean, he's hardened them. He's let them dive deeply in, you know, to their own sins. Is, is this mean God's given up on them? Is that what we're reading here? Does this mean there are people who, you know, it's over for them? You either accept it or you reject it, and then God hardens. Is that what that means? And then, and then he asks. He says, again, I ask. Did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Man, I think that verse, when you read Romans 9 through 11 in all of its kind of complicated ways, it, it, there can be this picture of a, of a God, you know, if you take certain sections, who's just saying, you hell, you know, just, just you're in hell, that's it. You, I'm sick of how you're acting or whatever. But Romans 11, 11 pretty clearly shows that that's, that is not how this is to be read because he says, these people who have just been so stubborn, they've, they, they know about Jesus and they understand about Jesus, but in their stubbornness, they have rejected Jesus. And they've rejected him so clearly and utterly that God has said, fine, I'll harden you and I'll continue to work my purposes in this world. And we can go, well, that's it. And I think, I, man, we all probably can, I won't make you raise your hand, but we could all raise our hands and say, I know someone like that. I have a family member like that. It seems like they've rejected God so long that God just said, okay, fine, I'm pulling back, you know, and, and now they're so hardened towards God and it seems like they will never, ever, 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 ever give their lives to Jesus. And we have to ask the question, first, are they rejected by God? Is it over for them? And then second, have they stumbled to the point of no longer being able to recover? And I, man, Paul's answer is so important. Not at all. Not at all. They are not lost for good. They still have the opportunity to place their faith in Jesus. In fact, it's important to note that the only, the only, and, and man, it seems like this is uh, in a society that is quicker nowadays to just push people aside because of their, uh, their sin, because they've done things wrong. Uh, this is less and less a popular idea, I've found. But as Christians, we must hold to it. We must hold to it. Until a person breathes their last breath on this earth, there is opportunity for them to enter into a relationship with God by grace through faith. And our culture is like, well, not those people, you know, they deserve it. I'm hearing more of that. Even and it's not a Christian thing anymore. It's like more like people are excited about others being condemned for eternity. And as Christians, it doesn't matter how culture shifts. We must, we must believe that people have not fallen beyond recovery, that if they will choose to place their faith in Jesus, then God will pour out his grace upon them and they can spend eternity in heaven with us. And then it says, rather, and this is so interesting, this is a big, big transition coming, right? It's gonna jump into really what feels almost like a different topic. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. The transgression here, disobedience, rejection of their Messiah. And basically what we read here is 
is that God is using the rejection of the Israelite people towards their Messiah in order to bring non-Jewish people like myself into a relationship with him. Now, this, que- this is my question when I read that. I don't, maybe you're not even thinking about it, you don't have that question. But my question when I read that is like, and I've thought this before, this isn't just this week when I'm preaching. Like, what if the Israelites would have embraced Jesus is their Messiah. Like, what happens then? And uh, thankfully, I don't have an answer for you. But thankfully, I've, I've, uh, we watched The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe recently with my kids. And I think that C.S. Lewis, as he quotes or as he writes for Aslan, really gives us the best resolution to it. It's, It's this, Lucy, if you know the story, asks Aslan, what would have happened? It's the question. He says, to know what would have happened, child? No, nobody has ever told that. And so the question like what would have happened, we're never going to know that, but we do know what happened. God has used the rejection of the Messiah by the Israelites in order to bring those of us who aren't Jews into a relationship with him. And then in Romans 11, Romans 11, 12, it says, but if their transgressions mean riches for the world, then their loss means riches for the Gentiles. How much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? Just pause and think about how beautiful and important this is. Uh, It's wonderful that God has used the rejection of the Messiah by Israel, by the majority of Israelites, I should say, in order to bring me into a relationship with him. I'm thankful for that. I am richly blessed through the relationship that I have with God. Uh, My salvation means everything to me. And yet what Paul says is if the Israelites will will come into the kingdom. If we'll see you know, a mass conversion of Jewish people into Christianity, it will mean greater riches for the Gentiles, for you and me who aren't Jewish. It will mean greater riches for us when more Israelites, more Jewish people convert. First of all, it's just, it's inspiring. Like, because main reason is we should be, trying to help Jewish people understand that Jesus is their Messiah, right? I don't know what the rich, the richer blessings are, but I want more rich blessings. I, I feel good about that. If somebody says, you want more or less blessing in your life, I'm taking more. And Paul says, more if Israelites, if more Israelites come in, it's, it's better for us. Um, two things really important about this. First of all, there is no place for anti-Semitism in Christianity. And, and there's been far too much of it in, you know, decades and centuries past. And so I, just, I don't think it exists at the, you know, at least in our culture here, it doesn't uh, exist at the level it has maybe in history in church, but there is no place for it. But then this other thing that I didn't really know about, but, I, but, I, but I've sensed it, I guess, in my church background. Uh, apparently, post-Holocaust, there was a movement in Christianity uh, that became really anti-evangelism of Jewish people. Uh, the attitude that, that became uh, kind of pervasive in the church, and, and I've, I've sensed this, is, is Jewish people have suffered enough, so just don't try to convert them to Christianity. And, and, and as part of that, there is this theology called two-covenant theology. And two-covenant theology is basically that non-Jewish people, Gentiles, they get a relationship with God through Jesus, but Jewish people, they get a relationship with God based on 
the promises of the Old Testament. This is false. This is, <laughs> this is not true. This is not biblical. This goes against so much of what we read in the book of Romans. The only way to a relationship with God for Jew or Gentile, this, I don't know how you can read Romans and miss this, is through a relationship with Jesus by faith because of grace. N.T. Wright says, the irony of this idea, two-covenant theology, is that uh, the late 20th century, in order to avoid anti-Semitism, has advocated a position, the non-evangelization of the Jews, which Paul regards precisely as anti-Semitic. And here's, this is what's interesting to me. I, didn't, I grew up in a home where it kind of felt like, looking back, now that I know this term, kind of felt like we almost believed in a two-covenant theology. Like the Jews are okay because they're Jewish, uh, and we Christian, and nobody said this, nobody vocalizes. I didn't have any, you know, high-end theologians running around me. But it almost just felt like, well, the Jews are going to be okay. And part of that is connected to a theology called dispensationalism. Like there will be a time when Jews will come in. But, but it was just like the Jews are going to be okay. And what Paul's getting at here is the Jews are going to be okay if the Jews, any Jew, chooses to place their faith in Jesus. And so we should be doing our best to help Jewish people know and love Jesus by faith because of grace. And then he, he launches into this, um, this analogy of an olive branch and says a bunch through it. I brought one uh, today, a little fake olive branch from Drew and Hannah's wedding. And uh, it's Palm Sunday. We mentioned that in the kids video. And, you know, a couple years ago, I looked back at all my Palm Sunday sermons and I thought I was unique every year. I listened to five of them. I said the same thing five years in a row. So uh, so this isn't a Palm Sunday sermon, but we do have an olive branch. It kind of looks like a small palm branch a little bit. Um, and and Paul Paul says this, they were broken off, the Jewish people, so that we might be grafted in. He says, we share in the nourishing sap of the olive root, <clears throat> which connects with, with what he's already said about how the Jews have these blessings like the law and you know, worship practices and, uh, and the promises of God. We've been able to tap into that nourishing sap as Christians. And then he says, we are not superior because if, if God broke off the Israelites in order to, to graft us in, then surely like we could be broken off too, you know? And then he says this, but if they were broken off because of unbelief, you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. He says, if Christians stand by faith, then we can't be arrogant because it's not like we've earned our way into the olive branch. It's not like we just shimmied our way in there and, you know, stuck ourselves into the root or whatever. We've been brought in by total and utter grace. And so he says, don't be arrogant about it, but tremble. Don't take your Christianity for granted. Now, when I say that, I also have some theological background in my um, uh, younger days where, uh, you know, the a church I was born into, really, that it, not intentionally, um, but, it, but it presented the gospel in such a way that, that, that people, you know, were left kind of just scared that every day God was going to re-reject them, and you're in, and you're out, and you're in, and you're out, and then, and then you do tremble, you know, you tremble, and you think, wow, I hope I'm a Christian today, and you convert every, you know, youth group or whatever it might be. And, and that's not what Paul is advocating here, just sitting around worrying about your salvation all the time. Because here's what he says next. And I think this is so important. Um, because we can't. I think we do take our Christianity for granted far too often. But I don't think the anecdote to that is, is just being scared of losing our faith all the time. I think the anecdote is this. Consider, therefore, 
the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Consider the kindness and the sternness of God. I think, man, that we always go one way or the other. The, the, the description I just gave of the church I was born into, that's all about the sternness of God, right? Like he's going to get mad at me and he's going to kick me out and I won't be a part of his kingdom anymore. On the other side, it's like, well, I've been brought in by grace, so I'll do whatever I want all the time. And, and man, we should be thinking about the fact that God is both infinitely kind and, and infinitely stern, it seems. Again, I'm going to quote the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Uh, Mr. Beaver is talking to the kids before they've met Aslan, who represents God and Jesus uh, in, in this story, if you don't know it. And, and they say, who, who's Aslan? And they're shocked by the power of the name. Who is he? And he says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course, he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. This is, my, this is one of my favorite themes in the Chronicles of Narnia is, is this tension between the almighty, powerful nature of God who does condemn people if they choose to reject him past their final breath and the loving and good gracious, saving nature of God. And, and what Paul says is, as an olive branch who's been grafted in, we must, we must hold both of these two things up and, and consider them and think about them and remember that God is both powerful and just and he is powerful and gracious and loving. We must not jump to one side or the other and say, oh, you know, God just wants me to be happy, you know, or, <clears throat> or God is going to kick me out every two seconds of a relationship with him. If we're going to continue to live out the faith we want, we must remember the sternness and the kindness of God. And Paul says next, and if they do not persist in unbelief, talking about the Jews again, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut off, uh, of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted in into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their old olive tree? Paul says, hey, if you got it, then surely God's going to let them in. Answering that question right at the beginning, did God reject these people? Absolutely not. Because you were the ones not even trying, Gentiles, you were the ones not even trying to serve God, and yet you got in by grace. And so if these people will place their faith in me, then they will get in too. And then he has this section that I'm not going to read, where he says, Israelites will convert. He actually uses the word all, and it's, it's you know, clear based on everything Paul has said that when he says all here, he doesn't mean it as all encompassing. He doesn't mean every single Israelite. In fact, if you remember back, if you've been with us, he, he's already said not all who descended from Israel are Israel, but he does say there will be a conversion of the Jewish people. It's really interesting to me, and, and there's some debate here about, um, about whether that's, you know, one big kind of mass revival at the end right before Jesus comes back, or whether that is a, a slow uh, trickle. And, and either way, it, it, 
I mentioned at the beginning that I kind of put people into categories of who might get in and who might not get in and who is worth sharing the gospel with and who's not worth sharing the gospel with. And sometimes I think like probably Jewish people, especially, you know, strong, passionate, uh, religious Jewish people, they would be on my list of like, that's going to be really difficult, right? Like they're, they're, they have their ways, they have their beliefs, you know, sometimes easier, somebody doesn't really believe anything, you know, very strongly, but a, but a Jewish person who's really entrenched in their faith and their religion, like that's going to be a hard one. But Paul, he says like, there's going to be a revival of Jewish people. Whether you think that's right at the end or, you know, over time, there's going to be a movement of more and more Israelite people into the faith. I didn't even know this three verses or whatever really existed. Um, But this kind of excites me and it makes me, you know, want to talk to uh, the Jewish people that I interact with about faith more clearly because there is at least, uh, I think, a prophetic word in some ways that there will be a revival of the Jewish people. And then Paul says, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who are at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so too they now have become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. I just want to focus on two things because they're so important. Disobedience and mercy. These are really important things uh, as we think about all this. Has God rejected these people? Absolutely not. Has God rejected any person that has not breathed their last breath? Absolutely not. Because the reality is, the simple truth, is that each and every person has chosen to be disobedient to God. Each and every person in their own way has been stubborn towards God. We have stubbornly said, I will not do what you want me to do. Some people have done that for longer. Some people have maybe done that stronger, but every person has been disobedient to God. It says that right there. Every person has been bound by disobedience. And what we need because of that, what every person needs, whether they seem far from God or close to God, or maybe they have a chance or maybe, you know, they don't feel like they'll ever Every person needs the same thing, and it's the mercy of God. It's God's desire to relieve their misery that has been induced by this thing that we call sin. And Paul has already laid forth the groundwork. He said, all people have have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but the gift of God, the grace of God is eternal life, and it comes in one place, Christ Jesus our Lord. What Paul is saying to us in you know, Romans 9 through 11, I think it's so clear as we kind of finish, we'll look at a doxology next week on Easter. Paul just praises God, but he's saying, whether Jew or Gentile, you've been disobedient and you must place your faith in Jesus in order to be saved from that disobedience, to receive the mercy of God. And so I would look at, you know, two groups, you know, of people in front of me. I would look first at people who have not received mercy. And maybe you feel as though you're so far from God that you cannot ever come back. And the olive branch is such an important illustration because God's saying you can be grafted in 
but you have to place your faith in me. It doesn't matter who you are, how bad you've been, how many times you've rejected God, how your family acted towards God, how many family members you have that are Christians or not Christians or whatever it might be. You are not beyond the mercy of God. God has not rejected you forever. You still have the opportunity to place your faith in him. And then for those of us that are Christians, I feel like there's been a point in sermons two or three more times maybe, but I need to make it again. We can't look around and think that person's too far from God. We have to look at every person as just one simple, one simple step away from having a relationship with God that leads to them receiving mercy and grace and all the things that we love about Christianity. And that one single step is faith. And so, as I said last week, we, we need to, we need to do our best to to share the gospel with people and to show people, to help people understand the gospel. But we do not need to be the people who think, yeah, you're hard and you're not hard. (laughs) You seem too far. You seem not too far. We just need to do our best to have important conversations with every person in our lives.